The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hey, welcome into episode 77 of the House of L podcast. I am the host of House of L, Lawrence Holmes. I am um, I'm back from vacation, kind of. I'm actually recording today's episode in the SCORE studios before I officially go back on the air on Wednesday of this week that I recorded the podcast. I'm excited. I've never really done this before ordinarily if you're interested in the process and I don't know if you are but if you are ordinarily what I do is the interview I do it first and then I do the front and the back end of the interview after it's done put the whole thing together and then present you with what we have but there's a bit of a time crunch today so I thought I would do the front end before I do the interview I'm sitting in the studio now waiting for the phone call from Gary Goldman, who is going to be my guest. And if you don't know who Gary Goldman is, he's an extremely funny comedian, one of my favorites, to tell you the truth. He has a bit about Karate Kid, which is one of the funniest things I've ever heard, and it paints Daniel as the bad guy, and the points that Gary makes is phenomenal. He has a special that's out right now on HBO called The Great Depression. He says, I got a little bit of the depression. And he talks about his journey to of figuring out that he was depressed and what it was like to be depressed and not be diagnosed for a really long time. His background is super interesting because if you looked at, at Gary, like he's a big dude. He's like six, seven or whatever. He got recruited to play football at Boston College. He's a pretty good basketball player. He jokes about a lot of that stuff in his special, again, The Great Depression on HBO. So I'm sitting in Joker, and I have some thoughts on Joker that I'll share on the back end of this. I'm sitting in Joker, and it was one of those scenes where, like, you look down for a second, and I look up, 
and Gary is in the movie doing his one of his more famous bits about role-playing with his wife as a, a college professor and a student trying to get a better grade. And I was like, holy, wait, it's a podcast. I can say it. Holy shit, that's Gary Goldman. And I told I told Panther, I was like, that's Gary Goldman. And she's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Go back to watching the movie. Um, so I'm really excited to talk with him. He's he's one of my favorites, and I think that his him being in Joker was really interesting to me after watching The Great Depression. Because outside of the homicidal and criminal aspect of Joker, he was kind of living that life. He was kind of living the life of the comedian that's trying to figure out who they are and if they're funny and they're, they've got all these issues and they don't know if the issues play a significant role and why they're funny and all of this stuff. It all makes sense now, and I, I'm looking forward to, to asking him about that in the podcast today. So he's my guest, and I, I can tell you, I, as I um, was on vacation, I had an epiphany that I needed to be more committed to House of L because I love it, knowing that I have all the other stuff too, and there's going to be more stuff now with television. I'm doing a lot more stuff now with NBC Sports Chicago um, eventually that will become more public, but I guess I just kind of made it public since this is my podcast. But anyway, it'll be more defined publicly um, over the next few months, some of the stuff that I'm doing over there. But you know that I'm doing the football after show and I'm doing the Dave Wanstead show. By the way, I'm really enjoying doing the Dave Wanstead show. Dave's really interesting, and he is all about ball like all the time. And it's fun to kind of see the game through a coach's eyes. But I'm having fun doing that. But one of the things I wrote down, I wrote a couple things down on my vacation. One of them was drink more water. Um, And I'm going to drink some water right now. And a recommitment to House of L. I I still don't know if I can churn it out one a week. But I do know that I'm going to record three of them this week. And I can tell you that the guests that I have lined up are people inside the um, the journal, journalistic world that I think especially people in Chicago are going to appreciate. But that's after we get through the conversation with Gary Goldman. And I cannot wait to talk with this guy. One of the funny dudes. Please check out his special on HBO. And if you're someone who suffers from depression or mental illness – Uh, Of any sort, I think that you can get something out of his story. So without further ado, Gary Goldman. You can hear me okay? Yes. Awesome. Man, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Oh, no, it's my pleasure. Well, let let me start here. What was the journey like to decide, once you decided that you were going to do the Great Depression? Well, I, I had a lot of help in, in that regard. My my manager was listening to my material on the road, and he, he noticed that there were maybe 15 or 20 minutes of jokes about my depression and my recovery and my treatment. And he said, maybe we can do a special revolving around your 
your depression. That would that would be very interesting. And I said, well, I only have 20 minutes. He said, well, why? What about a hybrid where we do part part documentary and part stand up show? And I said, that's a really good idea. I would be interested in in doing that. And so he he put me with a director he had he had worked with and the director's name is Mike Bonfiglio and I knew his work because I, I watched those 30 for 30 so I'd seen his You Don't Know Bo and also Doc and Daryl about, about Doc Gooden and, and Daryl Strawberry so I I was really impressed because I, I loved both those documentaries and then I sat down with Mike and we discussed it and we decided to work together and we started working diligently on, on building kind of a narrative between the documentary portion and the stand-up portion, but the thing he encouraged me early on was to was to keep writing about the depression and the treatment and recovery because we we felt we wanted to make more of a stand-up show than than a strict traditional documentary. So so that's how how it came about. Was that hard? Because the flashback shows you talking and breaking down a little bit on stage when you're talking to people about it. Was it difficult to go into all of that stuff to put together a coherent show? Well, I, I would say initially it was hard just to get on stage, and, and the thing was that I was I was so clearly not myself that I I felt I had to acknowledge it, and the the best way and the, the safest way to acknowledge it on a on a comedy stage is to make jokes about it. And, and initially the jokes didn't work or I would get distracted or, or I just wouldn't feel good. And, and what, what the special opens with is, is me really struggling on, on stage. So it got easier and easier gradually, incrementally. So it, it was, it was, if I was healthy enough to get on stage, then I was really healthy enough to talk about anything. The hard part was there were months where I, I wasn't even well enough to, to perform and, and to work, and, and that was what, what was really scary about it, was that I was, I was losing this, this thing that was, it was not only my livelihood, it was my, my outlet, and, and my, my, my socialization was, was dependent a lot of times on, on hanging out at the, at the comedy clubs or, or at the shows that, that I was doing to, to, to just get out of the house, so that was, that was, that was really troubling. How have you seen audiences change when it comes to maybe when you first started talking about this versus the way they reacted to you in the Great Depression? Well, I think that I am very fortunate in that I've put together an audience over the years. I've attracted certain people that come to my live shows and they'll come again and again. And they, they already, they already trust my comedic sensibilities and are, are fans of, of the way I work and the way I talk. And so to get them to appreciate something that's a, a little bit different, still in my style, but just with different topic and a different content, a little bit darker it was it was pretty easy. I noticed that when I would do shows in front of audiences that weren't there to see me, that they weren't necessarily my audience, it was it was harder and riskier to to talk about these dark subjects. And I often had to had to build up some confidence with these people who didn't know me before I could kind of delve into these 
these deeper subjects. So uh, I was very fortunate in the in the timing of this, and that I had had developed an audience that that was very generous and 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 patient with my with my delivery, and also and also understanding that that my my content had had shifted a little bit. When one of my favorite parts of the of the special is you and Robert talking about the myths of stand up and you both kind of right. at the same time come to the realization of no we don't have to be miserable to be funny why do you think that is such a prevailing myth in the comedy world well i think part of it is that comedians are more open and more likely to talk about their their personal lives than at other jobs, like it would be very unusual in in your job for for somebody to come on a sports show or or come on a or just come into your office to talk and and be completely open about their their mood or their their illnesses that that especially mental illnesses because it's just not appropriate. But sort of anything goes with with stand up. So people see stand ups talking about being sad or, or being heartbroken or, or being clinically depressed and they say oh that's that's part of being a, a comedian but I, I I really think the answer is that comedians are are able to do well and and be funny despite their their mood difficulties and despite certain mental illnesses not not because of it I, I will say that had I had a a shorter of, of depression and anxiety, I would have been able to write something as 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 interesting as as this. It's it's devastating no matter how long it lasts. So I, I didn't need two and a half years to be able to write this. Just a, a, a small dose of it would have been would have been fine. Do you think your mom gets it now? Do I think my mom gets it now? Yes, I I think. I don't think it took this level for her to understand. I think that I think that my mom sort of sat in for that generation and for a, a lot of Americans in in that they they don't they don't know and they aren't informed and honestly unless you've experienced it it's really hard to understand because the the limitation of our of our language is is that the same word for this thing that makes you so desperate and, and so devastated and unable to to enjoy your life or even really participate in your life is the word depression is also used for well this sports team that I love, the, the Red Sox lost in nineteen eighty six to the Mets in a in a really really depressing way and I'm depressed. It's it's the same word. It's it's just it's a it's a limitation. So people people think when you're saying you're depressed, oh yeah, I was depressed when the when the ball went through Bill Buckner's legs. It's it's not the same, not by a long shot. I really enjoyed the the interweaving of you talking about sports, obviously for, for what I do, but also because I think it, it busts down some of the, the barriers there. I didn't know about your experience at Boston College. 
And that that was oh, okay. that was kind of eye opening to me. I I I'm considering because we're about the same age. I'm 44, so I grew up in that time that you're talking about, where it's you know put some dirt on it, or if you did have any <laughs> sort, you know what I mean? Like like if it just you yeah. can't you can't have water like the the, the stuff that the uh, Junction Boys movie that ESPN had a a long time ago, like yes. it. it we, we we didn't grow up too far outside of that, so I I thought it was really right. interesting that that you had this experience there where there were people who were looking out for your mental well being at in, in a, a competitive place that had won championships and had a championship pedigree that they were actually interested in the individual. I I think that's really great. And and the fact that you made a point to talk about it, I thought was pretty cool too, because usually people look at athletics or working out as a way to combat depression. And sometimes it can just lead to more anxiety. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that my relationship with sports was, was, very unhealthy in, in that it was my my identity and beyond my my way out of out of just d- depression it was it was out of self-loathing and and out of just just feeling feeling mediocre or, or worthless really mediocre would have been fine I felt worthless so that's a lot to put on to put on anything to put that on on sports so that also brings about a lot of anxiety, and, and if you lose or you play a bad game, you're just devastated. And, and the, the idea that you're only as good as your last game is—I is, mean, that, that's a that's a terrible myth too. People people have off games, including the, the best of us. So, so that, that that was really difficult. But but I, I say it in the in the special. I mean, thank God that that Boston College was progressive enough and and that the people involved and and remember they they were one of the first major college football teams or sports programs to have a, a what they called the learning resource for student athletes which was sort of they would they would monitor your your schoolwork and grades and go over your classes and set you up with tutors and and it was just really important but they also were were careful to to mention i remember during during summer camp that they had somebody from the, the counseling services come to speak to us to tell us that if we, we had a problem. Now that was, that was after I had been already seen the, the therapist. So I had to pretend I didn't know him, but I, I, I mean, that's the other thing is that I couldn't tell anybody back then. And, and now people are much more open about, about the treatment they receive and even the medication that they take. And, and which I, I think is a, is a, a giant leap forward. I'm friends with one of the guys who sings the anthem at Cubs games. His name is John Vincent, and uh, one of the things oh, wow. that you, he he's a great he's great. You you got if you haven't met him, you got to meet him. He has a, a huge voice, and people saw him when the Cubs were winning the World Series. Uh, he kind of he's a big dude, and he's a former football player. Right, I remember him. He he's been dealing with depression and he's been diagnosed and oh. it registered with me because he's been doing ketamine. And he's okay, great. He's become a big proponent of it. So when you were talking about it in the special, I was thinking about John and he's had a he said he's had a lot of success uh, with it. So 
I'm so glad that you explained it the way that you did. Because even people in the audience, you could tell they're like, whoa, a horse tranquilizer. And you're like, no, they don't give you the whole dose that they're going to give the horse. Right, right. <laughs> they yeah. give you a little bit of it. So yeah. it, it, it really connected with me on that level, uh, understanding that it is something, it's, it's another alternative treatment. And you seem to have done a bunch of them to try and get the right sort of proportion to make you feel the way that you want to feel. Yes, I, I really, I, I mean, I wasn't patient, but I was a good patient. I, I, I followed the directions and, and I tried the things that my, my doctor recommended and, and we worked together to adjust dosages and things. And, and that's a very frustrating part of, of treating depression. If you can just keep your, your mind and, and your, your, your hope up while you're while you're figuring out what to do then then you you can thrive but it, it can be very frustrating but as you as you get older a, a couple of weeks isn't as long as it used to be when you were when you were a teenager so it's a little it's a little easier to 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 maintain and to handle but yeah i i, I think that it's 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 really great that that John is is open about that because that that's somebody who who is admired and respected and and also there's this this idea that success or or fame or or even just having a, a, a outwardly good life like it, that it looks like your life would be really fun and exciting is does not inoculate you against against mental illness it's it's chemistry and I I know there were periods in my life when I was when I was less secure financially and not in a good relationship and really struggling with my career when, when my mood was, was fine because for whatever reason, the, the, the chemicals circulating throughout my, my body and my brain were, were working in a, in, a, in a more satisfactory manner. Did you seek out the role in Joker? Because it, it, feels, <laughs> it feels kind of perfect that you were in it. And when I'm, I'm in the theater, I'm like, holy shit, that's Gary. Like, that's, I, I was yeah. so excited that, that it was you, and I love the the role-playing bit. So did you seek that role out, or did that role seek you out? I think that I didn't find out I was even up for it until I had it, which is the first time that's ever happened. Every other thing that I, I've done or wanted to do, I've had to audition for. But I think that my agent was in contact with the casting agent for, for Todd Phillips and, and Joker, and the, he sent them some footage of me performing and also a, a film I had done with, with Tony Collette a few years ago. And, and so armed with that, I think the casting agent showed it to Todd Phillips, and, and he chose me. And then we got on the phone, and he asked me what jokes that – weren't dependent on being modern. Like I couldn't do any jokes about the iPhone or the internet because it was set a while ago. So we, we talked on the phone and we figured out a, a joke that I could do that would be uh, appropriate. And, and so I just, I did that. And then, then we, we, we filmed it. And the day of, I was on stage and, and we were doing a bunch of takes and I was doing the, the joke and, and, it was going really well because they told the audience to laugh that I was supposed to be doing really well on stage. But there was one 
extra who was just laughing so loud and, and I was so irritated by it. And I was, I was about to say something and then it dawned on me that it was, it was Joaquin Phoenix and it was, it was the, the Joker. And I, I felt like such a, felt like such a fool. I was like, of course he would have a distinctive laugh, you idiot. And, and after that it was, it was fine. The irony of you being in a movie about a comic who's dealing with mental illness and trying. I know, I know. It it really is like if I didn't know better, I would I would think I was living in a dream because it. The Joker came out October fourth, and then my mental illness special came out on October fifth. So it's it's uncanny and and a, a little bit a little bit scary. It's not like I'm in a movie every weekend. I I go years without being in a film. So. That, that was really something. How have you seen people respond to both you being in Joker and the Great Depression and and you being vulnerable and putting it out there for the audience at HBO? Well, I I will say with with Joker, I people who I I know and who knew me in my neighborhood, I didn't tell them I was in Joker. I I don't tell them I. I, I just feel like it's like the bragging and being obnoxious. So I, I, but all these people from my neighborhood where I'm living now are, are coming up to me and, and high-fiving me and, and telling me that they, they saw me in Joker. Now, the, the reaction to the special has been incredible as far as the, the feedback has been 100% positive and, and the reviews have been so over the top in, in their praise. And then I, I heard from from Jay Leno and and David Letterman called the the director to to rave about it. And I've heard from so many so many comedians and comedians that I didn't even know. And and it's just been I mean again I'm 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 not saying this as a joke. I'm I'm pinching myself at least once a day because the. the I never expected it to be to be received this this positively. I, I thought it would I thought it would contribute to the the narrative of of that we're that we're going through now that mental illness is not to be stigmatized and it's to be taken seriously and that it's as 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 reasonable to seek help for mental illness as it is for a broken arm or or a sprained ankle. But it's that it's it's treatable. So I, I'm, I'm just, I, I went into this saying, if I can help some people, I will be successful. And it's gone beyond that. I mean, HBO put it on for free for four or five days, which they, they hadn't done in in a really long time, decades, I think. So that, that was really something. The way that you put that that you made your wife Sade the the hero of this I thought was really admirable and she is a force man like <laughs> she is clearly oh a force for good in your life and I appreciated you doing that. Yeah, I mean the, the interesting thing that you don't know from the special is that when I got sick, we were only we were only together for about for about six months, and she. She stuck through that for two and a half years and went to every appointment and did research on her own and 
grew mushrooms in our apartment because she had read online that, that mushrooms, that cybersillin mushrooms were being used to treat depression, and I wasn't eligible for a, for a, for a test or, or one of those studies that they do at school. So, I mean, yeah, she was. I, I, I made it clear to, to everyone that I wanted it to be obvious that, that she was the, the MVP, but also that it's, a, it's, it's not a solo act, that everyone... Everyone in your your life will make it easier if if they're on board and and rowing the same way as you. Well, Gary, I appreciate the time, man. I truly do. I think that you're. Oh well, I appreciate your encouragement and support and and kindness on on Twitter, and I'm glad we got to talk on the phone. And and if if people want to come see me live, I'm I'm going to be in Chicago at the at the Vic on on March 28th. I, I wanted to come earlier in the in the year, but I, I know that Chicago winters can be can be pretty bad. So Horrendous. I to make sure I didn't get snowed out or something. But I I will be doing jokes that I've written since the the special, so it won't be anything from the from the special. I just I I always liked it when the comedian came back with new jokes, so I can I can promise the people that. Well, great. That that sounds March twenty eighth. Yes, yes, and I would love it if you can come, Lawrence. Oh, man, I'd love it, man. And if you're up for it, please come by our studio. I'd love to have you in studio. But, yes, count me in. I will be there for sure. All right, awesome. You can get the uh, people listening. You can get the tickets at GaryGoldman.com. And and thanks again for having me on. You got it, Gary. Good luck with everything, and, and I'll see you in March. Okay, great. Thanks, brother. That is Gary Goldman. That was awesome. Oh, my God. I love talking with him. I'm so glad that he's going to be here. And if you haven't, GaryGoldman.com if you want to get tickets. It's always nice when you get someone like we've been Twitter friends for a while. Like he's been following me for a while. I've been following him for We've been Twitter friends. So for us to actually talk is uh, dynamic. And if you see Joker, he's the guy that's telling the joke about doing role play with his wife as a college professor, but he takes it a little too far. Oh my God. What a great anecdote about him being mad. (laughs) Then Joaquin Phoenix is in there acting up and laughing crazy. That's so good. Oh man. So please the great depression. It's on HBO. You should look for it. And Gary's going to be in Chicago on March 28th at the Vic. So make sure you get tickets for that. Let me do a couple of emails, and then I will get out of here. Um, man, that was super positive. God, I love stuff like that. I can't wait for John Vincent to hear that, too, because I think that he would really uh, appreciate it. This from Richard. Hey, Lawrence, big fan. I really miss you listening listening to you when you were on at 6 p.m. back in the day. I really enjoy your podcast. I've listened to all so far, and they are great, but I've always wondered if you are a Howard Stern fan. Your interview style is very similar. Has anyone ever mentioned this to you? Just a little observation. My respects, Rich G. Yes, um, I, I am someone who loves to listen to Howard Stern, and I think that his. I think my style is a little bit different than his, but yes, there are definitely. If you're listening to me, there are elements of Howard Stern, Mark Marin, Doug Banks, Tom Joyner, Steve Dahl. I mean, they're they're influences from. Everywhere inside my career, Chris Rock, 
Gary Goldman. Uh, so, I mean, there's there's all of this stuff that's kind of amalgamated into my own personality. But, yes, I, I, I would definitely consider myself someone who is a fan of of the ever-evolving Howard Stern. Um, can I take a – here's one. Oh, this guy's mad at me because I wore an ascot on television. Howard says, please do not wear an ascot anymore up there with four tough-ass dudes. You know your shit. We get our haircut in the same place, and you're there talking knowledgeable shit. That ass guy is not you. But whatever you decide, you're one of knowledgeable brothers from our neighborhood of Hyde Park. Here's what I wrote back to Howard. <clears throat> Howard, I wore the ascot because the game was in London, and the four, quote, tough-ass dudes loved it. And furthermore, I'll do what I want. Thanks for your concern, but mind your business. That's right, mind your business. But yes, mind your business. I'm sure I'll see him in the in the barbershop over at Blues. One more. This from Michael. First of all, I really like your podcast. It's very insightful and enjoyable to hear from behind, people from behind the scenes of broadcasting. We always get to hear them in the field or on the field talking about what they know best. It's refreshing to hear them speak about normal life. I have a couple podcast guest ideas. I like to suggest Cheryl Burton. She's got a million stories to tell. There's no doubt about that. Second, I'd be interested in hearing a follow-up with Kelly Kroll with the Cubs moving their new channel and transitioning to a new manager and NBC Sports Chicago going through a reorganization. I feel like she's approaching a crossroads about and about to springboard into greatness. I, it's funny. I just saw Kelly yesterday. I agree with you about the springboarding into greatness thing. I don't know what she's going to do. I don't know if she ends up being I, I look I'm not here to program marquee they don't pay me to do that but if someone over there asked me I would tell you that Kelly Kroll should be the face of marquee and anyone who's asked me inside of our business I've told them that she should be the face of marquee I and she's still under contract to NBC Sports Chicago so maybe my bosses over there don't like me saying that but to me it makes all the sense in the world if you want to launch a Cubs network with some real gravitas. She is beloved in that organization. They love her in that clubhouse and, and in that and uh, in that dugout. She is kind of outside of outside of Lynn and JD and Cap and Cap staying at NBC Sports Chicago. I don't know if there's anyone who's more branded with the Cubs than Kelly. So, hey, Marquee, hire Kelly Kroll. Make her the face of your your outfit. There, I've said it. <clears throat> so it's all out there for people. And that's going to do it, man. I really enjoyed this episode. I'm glad that we are back. I can just tell you that we have some incredible guests coming up. I'm not going to say any more than that. I just know that I'm recording three episodes this week and outside of this one. So there's going to be a lot of cool House of L content for you to dissect. Thanks to Gary Goldman. Thanks to his team that put us in contact with each other and got us together to do this. That was so great. I'm so glad that we got the opportunity to talk. Um, and I'll have another House of L coming up in a couple of weeks. And I'll be back on the air on Wednesday. And I'm going to share some of this stuff that Gary had to say on Wednesday as well. Thank you so much for listening and your patience. House of L is back, baby. Woo! Peace.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.